I grew up in Southern California, near the ocean. I loved the beach, and I had several friends who were accomplished surfers. I was not. I would go to the beach after school and on weekends. Various people tried to teach me how to surf. If you've never tried it, trust me, it's a lot harder than it looks to stand on a surfboard as a wave flows under you. I remember one day in particular, I was determined to successfully ride my first wave. Over and over I got on the board, and over and over I went flying headfirst, sideways and backwards into the churning ocean. When you come flying off a board, you can find yourself spinning underwater, not knowing up from down, fighting that panicky feeling that you're gonna drown. Finally, breathlessly, you find yourself above the water, bobbing up and down. You're bored who knows where. I'm going to get back to this. I'm sure you're dying to find out if I ever managed to ride a wave that day. Consider James, the book that's widely believed to have been written by the kid brother of Jesus. This isn't known for sure, but we do know that Jesus' brother was very active in the early church that he was the leader of the Jerusalem church, which was made up mostly of Jewish followers of Jesus. He was very involved in the highly influential Jerusalem council, where the decision was made to spread the faith to non-Jews. Further, the evangelist Paul referred to James, the brother of Jesus, as an apostle. So it would make a lot of sense for him to have written this letter. The only issue is that the letter is written in a very refined Greek, and like Jesus, he probably had very little education. But it would have been normal for someone like him to have gotten help from a Greek writer. We'll never know for sure, probably, if the brother of Jesus, who was named James, wrote the book of James. But either way, the author wrote the letter to address the spiritual needs of Jewish Christians living in the area immediately around him. The people there lived a hard life. The Roman Empire had taken land from farmers, turning them into poorly paid farmhands. Many were driven off the land and ended up working in towns as marketplace day laborers. There was an extreme separation of wealth with what we might call the traditional middle class being driven in large part into poverty. James is lifting up his readers, giving them hope and strengthening their faith. In chapter one, James tells his readers this, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. James is telling us that we should be putting our faith only in God. If we have divided loyalty, if we value the things of the world too much, then our faith will suffer. James is focused on telling us that we must be focused on faith. Those who try to live in two worlds are simply unsettled, like a wave on the sea tossed by the wind and crashing on the shore and disappearing into nothing.
Consider Ephesians. It is admittingly written in a bit of a run-on fashion, and so it's very hard to read. In fact, this ponderous style, which runs through the entire letter, is a primary reason why many people say that Paul probably did not actually write this letter that has traditionally been attributed to him. It's also believed that the letter was written probably after the life of Paul when the church had grown a bit and had become somewhat of an organized entity. There's another letter, one that's not biblical, and it refers to Ephesians, and that letter was written around the year 96 AD. So the best guess is that Ephesians was written somewhere around the year 90 AD, about 25 years after we believe Paul died. But Ephesians contains beautiful lessons for all of us to learn. Let me step through verses 11 to 16 of chapter 4. Paul is giving ethical advice, telling us how to live a life worthy of having been made in the image of God. These verses tell us that once we identify as Christians, we need to learn to live as Christians. We will all serve in different ways. Some people will be teachers of the faith. Others will serve as evangelists. And a few will serve as pastors. All of us must serve to help others become mature and confident in their faith. Once we've done this, we will no longer be childlike in our faith tossed around by waves, not knowing what to believe, listening to people who teach us things that are very wrong and very evil. We will then work together as a unified church, all helping each other in a loving way. The passage from James tells us that we must be focused and purposeful in our faith and not be distracted by worldly things because, quote, a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. The passage from Ephesians says that if we're immature in our faith, if we're not disciplined, then we will be, quote, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So that first reference from James is intriguing in that it notes that waves are in part a product of the wind. Just as waves are completely vulnerable to strong winds, a believer whose faith is split between God and the world will be weak and will be incapable of keeping their spiritual direction. The passage from Ephesians says that if we're weak in our faith, we'll feel like we're being tossed around by waves in the ocean. Now, while I'm a big fan of allegories and metaphors, and I love reading the Bible in part because it's so literate and so full of this sort of colorful language, it can take the edge off of the blunt truth. You see, when we see ourselves as waves being tossed around by the wind or as being tossed around by waves, we need to keep in mind that we, along with those waves and that wind, are all humans. We're not 
chaotic natural phenomena that's uncontrollable. We are people who are in complete control of what we do. The wind that tosses us as waves around is made up of humans who surround us. They may or may not know that they are doing us great harm by drawing us away from our faith. That is what our modern society does. When you turn on the TV or go online or even enter into a casual conversation with another person, people are often telling you that being greedy instead of generous, seeking revenge for minor slights, responding with anger when we find someone who disagrees with us, and even resorting to violence as a form of protest, these things are modern, sophisticated, moral ways to live. These people tell us to live like that because they've been convinced this is true or perhaps because they want to see evil overcome good. The people who teach us this new faith, this new religion, they're not the wind or the waves acting ignorantly. We are not waves or any other natural phenomena unable to make learned, conscious, and ethically based decisions. We're all humans, and that's why what is going on in our world today is so dangerous and so intensely evil. No matter what disasters we should see unfold from the actions of nature, like floods, fires, earthquakes, and tornadoes, those things are localized, they're temporary, and they don't touch the hearts and the souls of people. We, on the other hand, are astonishingly powerful. We can corrupt far, far more effectively than nature. I think that the authors of the Bible, since they live so close to the land, and since they didn't understand the actions of nature much at all, they were far more deeply impacted emotionally by natural forces. We, on the other hand, can quickly rebuild large structures. Even if we can't predict or manipulate natural forces, we can reason scientifically, thus greatly minimizing our fear response. I believe that the passages that we looked at today were far more intense and meaningful for the early Christians. Whether we see ourselves as waves being tossed around by the wind, or whether we see ourselves as being tossed around by the waves, it just doesn't seem that compelling to us today compared to how it felt to the early Christians. Now, getting back to that day when I tried to learn successfully to ride a surfboard on top of a cresting wave, here's how it all unfolded. I was actually in a small protected area, a sort of cove. The waves there were relatively small. There was very little wind. My friend, a girl from my school, found me a place with a rather small, gentle series of waves. Meanwhile, just hundreds of yards away, the ocean was open and was crashing violently on an exposed beach. Experienced surfers like my friend were joyfully riding huge, violent waves. I finally did learn to stay aboard a surfboard as the wave rose, charged toward the coast, and then broke. The first time I did this without being tossed off, without finding myself twirling underwater, disoriented and panicky, I stepped onto the beach 
lifted up like you would not believe. I jumped up and down. I was a surfer. Now, in truth, I never became much of a surfer. I did wear a St. Christopher medal, which many surfers wore at the time, and I still wear one today. Surfers adopted St. Christopher as their patron saint because Christopher, which means bearer of Christ, was supposed to have carried a child across a wildly raging river. In truth, the Catholic Church dumped St. Christopher and took him off the rolls of saints because it's now believed that he never existed. But we do exist. We are real, capable, powerful humans. We can protect our moral selves. We can protect the morality of other people. We can be shining lights in the world. We have in many ways lost our confidence in ourselves. That's what these passages we looked at today from James and Ephesians really mean. That's what the kid brother of Jesus and the pseudo Paul are telling us. We need to go out into the world and be strong. We need to courageously model and teach the right way to live. I walked in to see a patient a while back and like many patients and family members, she noticed that I had a cross and a bunch of medals around my neck. I told her that I was raised Catholic, but that I'm now a Methodist reverend. I said that the cross is how I define myself, but that the medals were more of a reminder of the beauty and the faith of my childhood. She had a similar story. She said that when she got out of the hospital, she was gonna go get herself a St. Christopher medal. She was being treated for kidney disease and was hoping to avoid having to get a kidney transplant. She asked me if I knew the story of St. Christopher. I said, not really. She told me that this is how the myth goes. Christopher was born to a pagan king and queen. Christopher was a huge man, maybe seven feet tall, and back then that would have been an unbelievably tall giant. When he realized that his father was a cowardly man, he decided to test his own courage. That's why he sought out a child to rescue and why he voluntarily went into a deep, wide, raging river and lifted that kid up onto his shoulders. Now when his father, the king, found out how brave his son was, he grew jealous and had him killed. That's how Christopher became a martyr. We need to rediscover that courage, that willingness to confront society and defend what we believe. Here's the great part. When we do this, we're energized. We feel not just powerful, but refreshed and renewed. We are a computer that had a locked up screen, a keyboard and a mouse that weren't responding. And then under our own power, we pushed the reboot button and brought us back to a full life. You and I are free and we control how we live and how we impact others. Remember, you're not a wave or the wind. You are human. You are made in God's image. And oh, I brought that patient with kidney disease a St. Christopher medal.